0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really about looking at images and seeing and putting them together and looking at how they sort of behave and, and then making a decision in a way of whether I feel it will work or not. And, you know, it's trying things out until you sort of get to a point where you feel it's, it's working.
1: Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Makis. This time, we're embarking on a short series talking with artists who were born in Australia, but who later moved overseas to London. And my first chat is with David Noonan. Ballarat-born, David has lived and worked in London since 2005. He's acclaimed for his stunning black and white works, created from both figurative and abstract found images that stem from theater, dance, subcultures, and social media. The works span video to collage to tapestry, and they look at the interplay of the figurative and abstract, but also more emotive states like mystery and the uncanny. David's most recent show at Tarawara Museum of Art functions like one large installation where the works often capture moments not necessarily of performance, but when the mask drops. There is something both defiant and vulnerable at play. David talks about growing up in Ballarat, his trips to London, and his eventual move, and if he feels that leaving Australia has changed the course of his practice and career. We also chat about how David creates his works, questions on authenticity, and how he's recently brought colour into his practice. And before our conversation starts, I'd like to thank our generous sponsor for this series, Lena Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, who are based in Melbourne and Sydney. I've recently seen your stunning show at Tarawara Museum of Art just outside of Melbourne. And the title is Only When It's Cloudless, which is a line from a 14th century Japanese Buddhist monk. And I was curious, what does that title mean to you? And if it was evoking something that you feel or somewhere that you feel you're at with your life right now?
0: The title is the title of the of the sculptural installation in the main space at the gallery. So that title essentially applies to that piece. But then because the show itself is a kind of, in some ways, one large installation, we, we applied that title to the whole show, if that makes sense. So in a way, the title was quite specific to that piece.
1: I guess it interested me because a lot of the works do have no title at all. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that this seems like one of your most philosophical titles yeah
0: yeah possibly i mean i think because that installation's it's quite a like major piece i guess and i wanted to give it some kind of entry point in a way and because for me that that sort of the the figures within that um those sort of cutouts it's almost as if there's a kind of ceremony or some kind of ritual occurring and the lighting in it is very kind of particular so it it feels to me it's almost as if it's taking place under, under moonlight. And then there's within the images as well, there's two moons that appear in the imagery. So it related quite strongly to the kind of idea that there was no clouds. Therefore, the, the, uh, the sky was clear with this quite sort of, you know, quite directional moonlight sort of lighting the piece. So that was kind of the the idea in a way for me
1: yeah yeah I do want to talk more about the images but I wondered if we could start by talking about music because Warren Ellis of Dirty Three and the Bad Seeds fame has scored a central video work and it's it's such an incredible piece of music but he's also an old friend from Ballarat and it seems like growing up that you were quite into punk music
0: yeah I mean I was into lots of different kinds of music but yeah yeah definitely listening to a lot of Sort of, I was a bit young for the punk movement. I kind of missed it. Um sort of caught the tail end, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Ballarat was a place where, you know, you either fit it in or you, you really didn't. And I think a lot of, you know, myself and my friends didn't particularly <laughs> fit into small town country, Victoria in a way. And so I think music was a way of, particularly kind of alternative music, and was a, was a way of finding a space that we could occupy or kind of that was sort of spoke to us if you like i guess
1: no it's how like so many young people find their identity and find it through art as well like i I feel like you might get into painting and other art forms and cinema later but music is often the first socializing aesthetic experience that you'll have
0: yeah it's very i totally agree and i think it's also kind of shared thing as well with sort of you know, you share musical tastes with people that you know you have similar kind of connection with, and mm. and that was really kind of. In fact, most of my friends really growing up were me, were more were musicians rather than artists, and I was I was sort of more into art in terms of my own what I wanted to do. But like most of my other friends are in bands, I just sort of went along and watched them watched <laughs> them practice. You know,
1: for someone whose art uh, ended up focusing so much on moments of performance and, you know, featuring people applying makeup or getting ready to perform. I was curious if when you were younger, maybe did you dress like a punk or did you sort of have a way of dressing or, or getting yourself ready for the world, especially in somewhere like Ballarat?
0: Actually, that's a interesting, that's a good question. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we dressed, the group of us, I guess we hung out, we hung out together, we we did dress differently. We tried to, I guess, we tried to sort of define ourselves as a kind of group, I guess, or a kind of, you know, away from the kind of mainstream. I don't know what you call it, masculine kind of culture, I guess, that was prevalent at that time, and I guess in the early in the eighty in the early eighties, I guess, in late seventies. So there was always that element of preparing yourself for going out, or you know, going to a party or whatever. And also, we we used to do make our own kind of films and movies and and often that required sort of dressing up and you know performing different characters and so on so yeah there was there was definitely an aspect to that.
1: Yeah. Were your family interested in art?
0: Not particularly like no my my mum was really into sort of film and books and uh, like a big reader but not no one was really that interested in visual art particularly so I don't really know where that came from.
1: Maybe let's talk about the trip to London, because I understand that, you know, you did your undergrad in Ballarat and then you did your master's at the Victorian College of Art in Melbourne. But then I've read two stories on the move to London and I thought I might put them to you both and you can tell me what's true. Mm -hmm. But the first is that you went to London via India. And then the second one is that you and a friend were both finalists for an art award and the winner of the award had to buy a loser a ticket to London and your friend won the prize so you got the ticket to London
0: yeah that's the true story
1: okay that's the second one that's (laughs) a true story that's great
0: yeah that's what happened yeah my friend Jennifer Hickey
1: oh wow right
0: who then went on to edit Freeze for I don't know almost 20 years um, we went, we were, at, yeah, we were at VCA together and doing post and masters. And yes, exactly what you said in your story um, transpired. But we had no idea that any either of us would win. In fact, we didn't, we, had, we almost didn't go to the opening of the <laughs> of the prize because we were so convinced that neither of us would win. And we turned up late and Dame Elizabeth Murdoch was reading out Jenny's name and um, it was quite a, quite a moment. Yeah, so she left about a week later and then... I, tr- I followed quite soon after.
1: So that would have been because you, you moved there permanently in 2005, yeah. but you visited before you moved.
0: Yeah, this was back in 1995. I had a classic under 32-year visa, so I only stayed for two years. and I mean I would have st- probably stayed at that time, but it wasn't, I wasn't able to. So
1: What was it like when you were there for those two years?
0: It was a pretty interesting time actually. It was very much the moment of Britpop and also the whole YBA, Young British Artists moment was occurring. So it was culturally it was a really kind of significant sort of moment for England, I think. I mean I, I personally didn't really relate very strongly to the YBA phenomena, but there was also a lot of really interesting artists from the continent showing in London at that time from Germany and Italy and some of those artists but which were associated with certain galleries Jenny and I were much more interested in so but it was very formative kind of time definitely.
1: Yeah I guess one of the the big things that artists or anyone really thinks of when they move overseas is like financially how do you make this work I mean did it feel like it was a bit of a slog for those couple of years?
0: It was more than just a bit of a slog. (laughs)
1: Okay.
0: It was it was intense. I mean, I worked, we just worked so much. Like, I worked in a restaurant in Soho and actually employed any Australian who was coming through London always ended up with a job there, um, including Jenny, who went on to make a film about the restaurant called I Really Hate My Job. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it was, it, it was interesting too. I mean, we met really, really great people at, through this restaurant and, and Soho was the kind of central sort of, hub I guess of London at the time like the End hadn't really happened yet and so that's where everyone went and then sort of socialized so it was yeah and then on the on the weekends I worked at the Tate Gallery Tate Britain bookshop so I met a lot of people through that job too because most of the or well, all, all the all the people who worked at the shop were artists.
1: Yeah and so you come back to Australia for a little bit, and then in 2005, you moved to London permanently. What kind of prompted the permanent move?
0: A few things. Uh, I, th- I think I'd kind of gotten to a point, I was sort of in my, uh, I guess, early to mid-30s, and I kind of felt like I really wanted a, a shift to change. I lived in New York for a bit, and I'd travelled back to London almost every year since I'd left. or well, not every year, but, you know, quite regularly. So I felt like I had a... Sp- very strong connection still with the city and also the friends that I'd made at the time. So I felt like I had a kind of network, but I think one of the major reasons I went was I also had a gallery that represented me in London at the time. I'd just gotten that representation and, and I went over and for my first show essentially. And my wife Renee, so got Australia council residency. So that was a three month, I guess, trial period (laughs) if you like. So yeah. And I think when we moved over, it was a pretty interesting time again in London um, in the early two, in 2000, around two thousand and five because a lot of younger, interesting galleries were po- sort of popping up in the East End, and so there was a real scene occurring that was kind of quite different to the more mainstream kind of art world. It seemed like there was this sort of groundswell of new and interesting kind of um, activity, I guess, and all happening in sort of Bethnal Green and Hackney. And my gallery that represented me, Hotel Gallery, was, you know, was one of those sort of interesting up and coming spaces that had a very intense and interesting kind of energy around it. So it was, yeah, it was a good time to be here. And, and it was a good age, I think, as well, I think, you know, now I, I don't think socially I would be so engaged, but, mm. um, but, yeah. And then, and also Freeze had just started the art fair. So London felt like it was really kind of coming up and, and that, that was really when that, when that all sort of started, I think.
1: Did you feel like you were desperate to leave Australia? Like, did it feel really important for your practice and career to move abroad?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, I wasn't desperate to leave. in in that sense, I think it was more that I wanted another chapter in my life in a way. And that in some ways it It presented itself to me. Um, And, you know, I felt like that those hard years in the 90s kind of had set something up, this sort of infrastructure in a way that was waiting for me in a way, and and Renee as well, to sort of step into. So it wasn't, it didn't feel like I was, we were going over to start these new lives. They're sort of already sort of established to to some extent, if that makes sense.
1: When you are an Australian and you're kind of, you know, immediately in the London art world, do you try and hide your Australians or do you sort of embrace it? Is it is it you know a vice or a virtue?
0: I don't know. I think it's a funny question. Um, I think in the nineties, like there was a real sort of anti not anti Australian but a bit of a cultural cringe about Australia. But I think a, a lot had changed up, in, up from the nineties to sort of when we moved back. Like Australia had people thought thought of Australians really differently than they they had earlier. So the the kind of cliche about sort of the Earl's Court Aussie who works in a pub, you know, that kind of that kind of cliche had sort of diminished, and you know, people were really aware about Australia brought a lot of kind of food culture to London, like coffee culture, and so there were and there was a lot of really famous Australians now so in, the, in the film world and the music world. So I think people had a different attitude towards Australians. I think so. There was less of that feeling that you needed to sort of hide it. I think also. I think London particularly is a, it's a very international city, particularly in the art world, and it's a little bit like New York in that way that hardly anyone is actually from London. So it feels like like it's a sort of bit of a melting pot where people are sort of drawn to it for certain reasons. It was definitely the centre of the UK for art, for sure. I mean, there was interesting stuff happening in, in Scotland, in Glasgow, but really, you know, London is the centre for that, so...
1: Do you think you would have had the career and acclaim that you have now if you didn't move?
0: I don't know. I I think moving here was definitely allowed a lot more things to happen, particularly in terms of travel. But I I did have my galleries. I had a gallery in New York, and I don't think at that stage I had one in Los Angeles. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it definitely helped being here, for sure, because you were sort of in the centre of something, or in some kind of context, I guess, but and you. But yeah, so I guess it would definitely have helped, yeah.
1: How much does your hometown kind of stay with you, especially when you, you, know, you, you do make so many moves and a particularly big one? Because I know you've talked in the past about how the architecture and the weather of Ballarat is for you associated with a feeling of melancholy. And, and I feel like there is definitely a sense of melancholy in some of the works.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a certain sort of atmosphere, I guess, that I'm kind of, Attempting to tap into it, I, I think in some ways it's hard. It's hard, to, like it's hard to know whether it comes from where you're from, or it, it. I guess it's a combination of lots of different things. But I think when I definitely when I was at art school, I think that the atmosphere of the town and the kind of weather and the sort of music I was listening to and the kind of, I guess the aesthetics I was interested in, it did sort of mirror one another to some extent. And I think, and then I think. I, In the later years, I went off in different directions, but I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of returned to a certain kind of sensibility that was there in the beginning.
1: Let's maybe change route a little bit and talk about the images and the collage aspect, because I know you have an incredibly vast archive of books and magazines and media that you draw from, and I wondered when you're looking through the archive, and I know that you do it quite intuitively, but I wonder if you've had time to reflect now on what it is about an image that makes it end up in an artwork
0: um I still still trying to figure that out (laughs) um yeah it's it's really depends on what I'm trying to do or what I'm you know whether I'm making a picture or whether it's in a film or but often it's it is about collecting and letting things lie dormant in and sort of not sort of overthinking them. And then, you know, it's often a process of looking through and sifting through images and things kind of, you know, surface or want to sort of be shortlisted or... And then there's sort of associations that occur. And they're, you know, they're aesthetic and they're formal, but they're also, you know, and I think this comes from an intuitive or, or sort of trying to trust the process of, you know, how these images might work together. And I think that's particularly evident in the film piece in the, in the show at Tarawarra, where, and I, I guess that's the most the most recent work that I've made as well, so yeah, it's really about associations between images and what they do and and also it's also a lot about painting in a way that 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 piece because of the pigments and so on in the water that sort of either hide or reveal the images so there's a kind of way of using i guess all of my work in some ways draws from photographic imagery, but i I think I feel like I use very much the sort of language of painting in some ways um, in terms of, you know, the way I put things together. And also because that's what I trained as.
1: Is it the goal to make a unified image or is it to have an image that shows itself as fragmented?
0: I don't know. It's, it's, I think, uh, particularly in the tapestries, I think there's a real, I've tried to really express this idea of an image, like the collage aspect is very much sort of emphasised. You can see the kind of Way in which the image is cut out with scissors, roughly, and it's sort of there's that kind of DIY kind of punkish aesthetic. You know, like you can really see how it, the image is constructed. It's not trying to be anything other than what it is. I think with the the screen print collages, particularly the larger ones. Like there's a there's, super, there's a superimposition that occurs, so it's almost like a a film dissolve where you're seeing sort of two images simultaneously, and they're kind of embedded in one, but you know, in one another. Yeah, I think. It, in In all the pieces, there's a relationship between two things, and often it's a figurative element and a kind of abstract element, and they're in kind of dialogue with one another and but yeah beyond that i don't I think that each piece is sort of has to be talked about really in its own sort of terms, I guess.
1: Bearing that in mind, I'm going to ask another generalised kind of question, but <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. would you, when you asked starting to college, I wondered if you would start with an abstract image first or a figurative image first?
0: It's neither. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really about looking at images and seeing and putting them together and looking at how they sort of behave and, and then making a decision in a way of whether I feel it will work or not. And, you know, it's trying things out until you sort of get, to a point where you feel it's it's working without sort of it looking too overworked or overthought or laboured, you know, it has to have a certain sort of energy or something that makes you decide that this is something you want to commit to.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know you don't like to talk about the actual figures in the work or you know where you got in front of the history, but I was wondering if you had ever been in contact with anyone in an artwork or if anyone ever you know just got in contact with you and they were like hey that's me
0: (laughs) no not not personally but however um I did a really large piece of this standing figure this dancer and over this sort of abstract Japanese sort of textile and it was in the Basel art fair and this really old man came up to my gallerist and said that's such and such um She was the dancer for the Belgium dance company, Beja, the Bejar. He recognised this woman just sort of standing like six foot tall (laughs) in this picture. And, but that's as close as I've come. And, you know, it's not so much I don't like talking about the figurative elements. It's more I don't use figures that are um, recognisable. I'm quite careful to use imagery that, you know, you don't say, oh, that's such and such an actor or that's, you know, because it's sort of loses its intensity or it becomes about that individual whereas the figures in my works are not really meant to represent anyone as a sort of specific person they're more I don't know they're almost like props in a way they kind of perform a function within the picture but if they're recognizable it sort of falls apart if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah because what you're trying to do is suspend that moment not really supply a narrative to it
0: exactly and I think that's the thing as well um I want the viewer to sort of Create their own narrative, or their own response to the pictures or the the artworks. It's it, there's a lot of space in them, I think, for that to happen. And I don't really want to be over overly prescriptive on how the works mm. are read.
1: Do you care about your work being beautiful?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's an f- interesting word. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I mm. they have to just feel right to me. I guess I'm quite a f- highly aesthetically driven or sort of sensitive person and so I I do like beauty and I do but I guess everyone you know it's it's in the eye of the beholder isn't it so everyone has such (laughs) different kind of tastes but it has to satisfy my kind of aesthetic if if you if you like but also I'm not trying I don't look at my pictures and necessarily like them either like I I sort of they've done their job or something I don't know it's sort of but I really like I, I really find I really like looking I other artists, for instance, I that I, I look at their work and I find it really some you know very beautiful and I'm kind of drawn to that in 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 art in artworks. But again, it's it's a very particular kind of taste that I have, I guess.
1: Something else I was curious about is a lot of people when they write about your word, work, I feel like the most common word that comes up is that it's nostalgic. And in a kind of couple of interviews, I feel like you maybe slightly rebuffed that or you know, said that, yeah, it's nostalgic, but it's not, its purpose is not to be nostalgic at all?
0: Yeah, I, I think, I guess I get a little bit prickly about, around that word and I've got, to, <laughs> I've got to learn to sort of let it go a little bit because, you know, it, it's, it's very, you know, it's obvious why people make those readings, I think, because obviously I'm using a kind of monochrome palette, often the images are from different time periods. I think the thing that slightly frustrates me is I think that a lot of writers tend to sort of fixate on this idea that it's all the imagery is from the 60s and the 70s and it's very very much of that particular moment, whereas that's not really the case. It's really much, much broader than that and a lot of the imagery are from very different sort of periods of history from... From the forties right through to sort of now, but I think it it's just that I find it a little slightly because something's black and white, it has to be from the past you know that's that's but I can understand I can understand that impulse why people would read it that you know read it that way because yes, I do use images from the past, but I think it, for me it's more about sort of temporality like where you take something from one period and another from another and bring it together, so that's sort of like taking threads from different times, you know, a timeline of history and bringing them together. So for me, it's almost like that is part of the collaging process is is bringing things together, not just imagery, but things from different time periods.
1: Yeah, totally, because so many of the images to me have a a really sci-fi feel to them.
0: That's interesting you should say that. Like the film I made a few years ago called A Dark and Quiet Place, which was kind of essentially... Made from still images, mainly of sort of theatrical production, like stage sets and mo- a lot of which i'd sort of removed the actors and sort of left the kind of the props and so on of the sets and for me, that felt that film has a very science science fiction kind of feel to it, like these otherworldly environments that are created for as stage sets and they they do speak of these other worlds or these kind of constructed worlds, if you like. And in some ways, it was a kind of a nod to Chris Marker's film, Le Jeté, which again is is a science fiction film, but it's made entirely of still black and white images, aside from one moment in the film where a person blinks their eyes. So I feel like that there's references to science fiction within things that draw on kind of historical sources.
1: A few years ago you wrote a piece for freeze on the films that have informed your practice or meant something to you and it's a really great list but I did notice that you used the word inexplicable to describe a lot of the moments in films that you really liked and then I noticed in interviews that that word came up a bit too and I wondered what interested you about inexplicability
0: well i guess it's just it's sort of being lost for words <laughs> in a way it's like it's not being able to explain i mean that's also i'm a visual person i'm not particularly i find it easier to make things rather than talk about them in a way so i think i mean i think a lot of those films left a kind of impression on me because of, they had a kind of you know the elements of that came together within them did something kind of interesting move me or, you know, whether it be aesthetically or on lots of different levels. So, I mean, I guess I haven't really thought about Inexplicable for a while, but yeah, you're right.
1: (laughs) You've talked about taking influence from artists who have, and I'm going to quote you here, a certain authenticity that means it comes from a genuine place. And I wondered, as you get further along in your career and you do become well-known, can that authenticity be troubled?
0: It depends what you're trying to do, I guess, as an artist. I don't know about other people, but I feel like that people, as an artist, you're always trying to sort of move forward or do the, or like, sort of develop or, you know, but, you know, in some ways you're kind of stuck with what you've got in a way. You've got this, you've sort of, in a way, particularly, you know, as your career goes on, you've sort of built this sort of language, in a, I guess, and, that, and if it's authentic, it, it comes from somewhere that's sort of it's not pretend, so it's it's almost like you have this set of tools, if you like, or this and that you work with. And so I think that's the thing about, I guess, with my work, I work. I'm quite restless in a way, so I work in different mediums. But I feel that there's a certain sort of continuity between them. There's this, there's something that doesn't really change between each of them. So the same, you'll have a, the same kind of aesthetic resonance in the film as you might in one of the pictures. So. I guess it, it is about like building a language that it feel, that is authentic in a way, in, in, in the sense that you it's trusted by you. And I think it's hard to change that to sort of to shift it dramatically.
1: I was interested that you are in the middle of your career. And would you ever, I was curious a, if you ever thought you might come back to Australia, but also when you are in the middle of your career and you've got another 30 40 years left of making art is <laughs> there optimistic. some kind of oh <laughs> well you never know um I mean is it is it exciting or is there kind of a weight in choosing where to go to next
0: yeah I always find it really difficult to work when I've got a show on for some reason like whether it, it can be anywhere in the it's always a time of like taking stock and sort of thinking about I mean particularly with the because it was interesting to put a group of works together that were sort of, a lot were new but, and some from the recent from recent history. So it was quite interesting looking at sort of this five year period of my kind of practice. It's always really quite confronting actually, just to sort of take that in and try and sort of process it, I guess. One of the most sort of satisfying, all sort of interesting things for me that helped me process that was working on the catalog. I worked on it quite closely with Yanni Florence, who's a designer that I really admire and an artist that I really admire. So, and we've worked on books in the past together. And um, it was, a, yeah, it was almost like therapy. <laughs> it was a way of sort of processing the show through how it was arranged within this book. And it kind of felt like making work in a way, but it was it was, it was, was a way of processing the work in the show and the show itself. And I only just got, got a copy of it this week. So it was sort of, it feels like it's complete now that that, that sort of, I can move on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, if it is like therapy and a kind of reflection, is there anything, can you share any reflections that came out of that process?
0: I kind of, it just makes me feel, it makes me think about what I want to do next and how I want to do it, how I want to do things slightly differently. Or I think every every time you do a body of work, you really leave it behind, I feel. And so that was what was interesting in Tarawara, where there was quite specific bodies of work that have occurred over the last five or six years. And so looking back on the, on some of the earlier ones in particular, I could really see where I'd sort of I'd moved or shifted in in the way I'm thinking about making things. And I think that a satisfying thing in a way was having that, that film in the show which, was, which I'd only really just finished. It felt like the film kind of it sort of summed up a lot of the ideas and things that I'd been working with in the sculpture and, and in the and in the pictures over those years. So it felt like it it sort of somehow touched on all of that and and now there's kind of there's it feels like there's now a space in which some something else needs to be built and I don't quite know what that is yet.
1: Mm. And do you think there'll be because there is that hint of yellow in the film which I feel like is a little bit new?
0: Yeah it's very very new indeed I mean I haven't really used colour in any significant way for for as long as I can remember, really. But so yeah, it was a it was a, in a way putting bringing colour and quite intense colour into the work was a big thing for me, and um, I think it's definitely something that's going to sort of be more you'll be more you'll be seeing more colour in the work. I think. Watch this space.
1: And that was David Noonan. You can listen back to our previous podcasts which have interviews with artists including Patricia Piccinini, Vivian Benz, Gareth Sansom, John Walsley and Louise Weaver, to name just a few. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide online where you can also keep up to date with art-related features, exhibitions and interviews from across the country.